0: to really enjoy Italy, get acquainted with its different local regions. Italy is smaller than California, and yet it is so diverse, uh, you know, in its topography and geography and dialects and songs, but most of all, in its food. In
1: just a bit, chef Lydia Bastianich shares her favorite seasonal specialties from her Italian
0: homeland, the kind of food that can connect us with our past. These are the flavors of their roots, of their relatives, and what it does, it gives them strength.
1: Wine expert Nigel Mural shares tips for choosing which wine will make an ideal pairing with every meal you prepare.
2: And there are some wines that need more time to breathe, some wines that need less, some wines that can simply open up in your glass little by little, but some that benefit tremendously from being decanted for maybe a half hour or even longer. And listeners tell us what makes their hometown
1: special. It's all just ahead on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. You know, my favorite country to explore in Europe is Italy. I think one reason is because each region of Italy has its own character, even its own foods. What's on your plate can even tell you about a town's history, since they specialize in what's fresh and in season locally. Chef Lydia Bastianich shares some of her favorite comfort foods from the regions of Italy in just a bit on today's Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, a wine expert helps us know what to look for in making a great pairing with what's on the menu for tonight. First, let's get excited about a few places that are closer to home. In fact, what is it about where you live that makes it feel special? What would you recommend a visitor do to feel like part of your community? And what are some of the lesser-known gems that people might overlook about your city? Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Sandra's calling in from Toronto. Sandra, thanks for your call. From Ontario,
3: Yes. Hi, how are you, Rick?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for calling.
3: Great. It's fun to do.
1: I was just in your beautiful city a little while ago. I gave a talk at the library, and it was wonderful.
3: I have your book, and I knew you were in town that day, but I couldn't make it. I'm so sad I missed it.
1: Well, you made this, so it's nice to have you calling in. And what do you want us to know about beautiful Toronto?
3: Well, Toronto's a big city, so, you know, there's lots to do in a big city, but it's the lesser-known things that I think people might want to know about. Such as? For places to stay, you know, you can get the large hotels and it's going to be very expensive because Toronto is a very expensive city. Mm -hmm. But there's a great place called the Rex Hotel, Mm -hmm. which I think people, it's affordable, it's simple. But the great thing about it is that it has a jazz bar at the bottom of the hotel.
1: Mm, A jazz bar. Okay, Mm -hmm. so anybody would be comfortable dropping in there then, huh?
3: Oh, anyone can go to the to see the jazz. But if you want a centrally located place, that's probably affordable and a fun place to stay.
1: Well, what's so good about being centrally located?
3: Something that's more, it's better known, but you can take a small walk around the corner and you'll be up through Chinatown.
1: Mm
4: -hmm.
3: And from there, you can go to the Art Gallery of Ontario, which is a really world-class art gallery that has touring exhibits and lots of Canadian art.
1: If somebody from the United States wants to go up there and just feel like they're connecting with, you know, quote, the locals. What do you do to connect with friends and people?
3: Well, Toronto's really great for being multicultural. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of great places to eat. You could go along like where that hotel is located. It's Queen Street. You can look up some of the well-known streets and you'll find restaurants, cafes, and bars. And you will find a lot of the locals in those places.
1: And what else is something that you'd want to have on your eating list when you come to Ontario to be sure you've you've enjoyed (laughs) the local cuisine?
3: Um. Well, I think most people might know the Canadian foods like poutine or uh-huh. anything that has maple syrup flavored but um, we have so many people from different parts of the world that you can try food from all over and it can actually be a nice blend of two cultures too so you'll see like yeah. you know maybe something that's Middle East but mixed with Canadian.
1: Because if you want Cosmopolitan you probably don't go to Saskatoon.
3: <laughs> well it <laughs> me be surprised. People <laughs> settle all over the country. So well, you that's know. good. But
1: Toronto, I think, is a place where people from all over come.
3: I oh, think. absolutely. When you come here, you will see people from all over.
1: That's amazing. All right, Sandra, thanks for your call. Thanks, Eric. And from the same city, we have Adrian calling from Toronto, Ontario. Adrian, thanks for your Hi. call. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing?
5: I'm great, thank you.
1: Uh, were you listening when Sandra was talking?
5: Yeah, I was. So it's great to hear someone else from Toronto. Yeah, so she Presenting. talked about
1: uh, the the Rex Hotel and uh, wandering around, staying right downtown. What is your uh, tip for enjoying Toronto?
5: Well, my favorite thing to do in the city would probably be going to the Evergreen Brickworks. So it was an old brick factory. It was kind of deserted for a while, but they really redone it recently. So there's um, farmers markets there, there's art galleries, there's restaurants, and there's really amazing trails, which I love to do on the weekend.
1: I have a hard time envisioning this. It's an old brick factory, and now it's filled yeah, with nature trails and art exhibits. It sounds Yeah, it's like very
5: a, unique. It's yeah. um, kind of in a, a bit remote from downtown, maybe like a 10-minute drive, but definitely doable. Downtown. Is it kind
1: of a derelict old factory that all sorts of creative people moved into?
5: Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it's like.
1: Oh, I love that stuff. So what, you would go there, yeah. and it's like a park, and it's you You see crafts? I would imagine there's a like a, a weekend farmer's market or something?
5: Yeah, yeah, there is. And there's a bunch of trails as well. There's even ones where you can go up kind of to like the top of a cliff, and you have really great views of all of downtown huh. Toronto.
1: Is there a place for kids to stack bricks?
5: You no, know I don't know about that. Um they do have a lot of activities for the family as well. It's a really big...
1: That's kind of uh, what I mean. There must be too. some family activities. What would you do with kids Yeah, there?
5: yeah. I know they have some community gardens and things like that. That would be a really great place to spend some time.
1: Okay, so the Evergreen Brickworks. That's sort mm-hmm. of a surprising angle of Toronto, it seems like.
5: Yeah, yeah. It's pretty different from any other spot in the city.
1: And then if you were going to take me out to dinner, I guess we wouldn't necessarily okay. go to Canadian food. I mean, we wouldn't have pancakes with maple syrup. Uh, no, what probably would, not. What would we do?
3: Uh, well, it's so
5: multicultural. It's hard to pick one place. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one place that I just went actually last weekend, um, it's pretty popular. It's called Bar Ravel. Um It's Spanish tapas food. And it's so busy. It's such a hot spot for Torontonians that you can't even get a seat. You're honestly just standing um, mm-hmm. in the bar, kind of maybe like you would do in Spain. Um, mm-hmm. And the food is just amazing.
1: And is there one area after dinner that you would just want to walk around which you'd just see all sorts of action and liveliness, both on the streets and in the bars?
5: Yeah, I'd say Kensington Market is probably the best place to to walk around and spend some time. Kensington it's just Market. such a hub for all these different cultures that you can just go, you know, there's a restaurant from an Asian restaurant, and then you go somewhere else, and there's Mexican food. Hmm. So it's just such a mix of cultures there. Um, it's a really creative space as well.
1: So it seems like Toronto is the dominant city in Canada in so many ways. But if, yeah. you, if you were going to go somewhere outside of Toronto that you think is really happening and exciting...
5: What, what city mm-hmm. is most
1: impressive these days? What would Yeah, well, I've you?
5: actually just um, lived in Halifax for six years. It's on the east coast of Canada. Hmm. Um, it's a really charming city, um, you know, lots of good seafood. You know, it's on the ocean. It's really mm-hmm. beautiful. So I, I definitely yeah. recommend that. It's about a two-and-a-half-hour flight from Toronto. Okay. And I've always mm-hmm. wanted to
1: ask a Canadian this, but why would anybody live in Edmonton?
5: You know what? I've never been to Edmonton, and I don't really have a desire to go. So. I mean, it's
1: like, you know, <laughs> M- Minneapolis is cold in the winter, and yeah. that's like the tropics compared to Edmonton.
5: Yeah, I, I don't know why people, you know, want to live nice there. I'm not totally there. sure.
1: There's nice people there. My grandparents homesteaded up there 100 years oh, really? ago. Yeah, Oh, that's
5: cool. Yeah. But uh,
1: I just still want to know, of all places, why would you put your tent stakes down in Edmonton?
5: Yeah, I'm not sure. I've heard there's a really big mall. I've heard that's a, a huge very mall. Big well, well there's, a big, there's
1: a big mall in, in Minneapolis also. So that's maybe what you yeah. do when, when it's just Godforsaken outside. Create a yeah. huge mall. All right. Well, mm-hmm. Toronto is the uh, Canadian great city du jour. Okay, Adrian. Thanks yeah, for your absolutely. call. Absolutely. All right. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye. We're finding out what makes the town where you live feel special enough for the rest of us to visit right now on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877 rick and by email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. Paige in Buffalo, Wyoming, emails us this pitch for where she lives. She writes, Wyoming usually isn't on anybody's top ten list, excluding our beloved Yellowstone National Park. But I'd like to make a case for the town of Guernsey. I grew up in Wheatland, a much bigger town of 3,500 people, about a half hour away. We were fortunate enough as school kids to take field trips to the Oregon Trail Ruts and Register Cliff, both of them landmarks not far from our town. The pressure from so many wagon wheels actually left grooves in solid stone. Another 30 minutes away, will take you to Fort Laramie National Historic Site. A whole cast of actors helps this world come alive during summer. I still have vivid memories of eating hardtack and of hearing the working howitzer. Even for those who aren't history buffs, being in small-town Wyoming and surrounded by rugged sagebrush country makes one appreciate all the hardships those early Americans faced when they headed west. Thanks, Paige, for the report on what sounds like a beautiful corner of Wyoming. Craig's calling in from Chicago. Craig, thanks for your call.
4: Hey, Rick, it's great to talk to you.
1: Yeah, you too. What do you have in mind?
4: Well, I live in Chicago, and when a lot of people come here, they go to certain popular spots, such as Wrigley Field, the Sears Tower, Navy Pier. And those are nice, but there are a couple things that people miss. One of my favorites to recommend is the Garfield Park Conservatory. It's the world's largest underglass conservatory. It was built in 1908. The landscaping was designed by Jens Jensen, hmm. the famous landscape architect. By your typical under-glass conservatory, you could walk in, in a circle, and it's like 10 to 15 minutes. The Garfield Park Conservatory is so large, I think it takes an hour, and that's just walking without stopping. So, you,
1: Craig, by conservatory, is that like a greenhouse filled, like a, a park under glass?
4: Yeah, it's five acres under glass.
1: Whoa. And is it different little environments? Would there be the, uh, the arid area and the temperate area and the rainforest, or is it just a lush garden?
4: They have plants from every part of the world, from Africa, from Asia, from Europe, from Australia. And some of the plants that were planted in 1908 are still growing.
1: That sounds like a, a great thing to put on your list, the Garfield Park Conservatory. And how far, how do you get there from downtown Chicago?
4: Chicago has the elevated train system. There are eight lines the green line runs near there. In fact, there's a, it's called the conservatory stop, and it stops right there. Mm-hmm. You go down, and the entrance is practically staring you in the face.
1: So that's uh, over 100 years old. What else is from that period, yep. around the turn of the 20th century, that would be a sort of a, a little look at the elegant life of Chicago in, in the 19, early 1900s or late 1800s?
4: Another one I'd recommend is the misnamed... <laughs> auditorium theater when you hear the word auditorium you think of something from you know school days you Mm -hmm. go to the school auditorium this was designed by Louis Sullivan it was opened in 1889 Hmm. it's stunningly beautiful it has the old proscenium arches Hmm.
1: and would you go to a concert there Uh, do they have uh, certain kinds of performances is it turned into a a popular venue or, or what kind of art would you hear there
4: they specialize in dance performance the joffrey ballet is that's its home they have a the, the joffrey has its own building but they always perform at the auditorium theater okay. so? and there's a little bit of interesting history too the first time a sitting american president came to chicago was when was to open the auditorium theater was william mckinley hmm. and he inaugurated the theater in 1889
1: And it's going strong 140 years later. That's a long time later. Craig, thanks for your tips.
4: Hey, Rick, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks a lot.
1: Take care. Thank you.
4: Cheers. Bye-bye. Cheers. Come on, baby, don't you want to
3: go? Back to that same old town,
0: sweet home Chicago.
1: Chef Lydia Bastianich shares her favorite hometown tastes of Italy next on Travel with Rick Steves. I've long found Italy to have some of the tastiest food you'll find anywhere. The amazing variety of simple, fresh ingredients and traditional recipes will vary from region to region, thanks in part to its long coastlines and Italy's proximity to neighboring Mediterranean, Slavic, and Germanic cultures. Let's explore some of the comfort foods of Italy right now with Italian food expert and chef Lydia Bastianich. Lydia has made a career out of being a chef, television host, author, and restaurateur. She was born in what used to be an Italian enclave on the Istrian Peninsula. Her family escaped Tito's communist regime during the Istrian exodus and eventually settled in New York City. Lydia writes about her family's story and the recipes of her childhood in her book, My American Dream, A Life of Love, Family, and Food. Lydia, thanks for
0: being here. Oh, my pleasure, Rick. So how long have you been doing your Lydia's Italy show now on public television? The show is on twenty years now, Rick. So it's
1: been a while. Wow! Before that, you were—I understand—you were a, understand a Master Chef guest
0: on Julia Child. Well, how did it all happen? Was when I opened for in nineteen eighty-one. I became the chef there. We had restaurants before, but I wasn't the full-blown chef. But when we opened Philidia, I decided that, uh, you know, Italian-American cuisine was the cuisine then. still is now, and it's delicious. But I was going to do regional Italian cuisine. Italy has 20 regions, and, you know, Italy is smaller than California, and yet it is so diverse, uh, you know, in its topography, and geography, and dialects, and songs but most of all in its food. And it's just so much to tell about Italian food. And that's what I started doing at Philidia. Well, Lydia, let's, let's talk about that just for a minute because this is a travel show
1: and we're all dreaming of going to Italy. And, of course, we know what art to see and we know what museums to see and we know what hikes to take. What about... Uh, sort of a food agenda. If you were planning somebody's trip to Italy and they were going to many regions, talk about some of the most distinctive regions and what we'd want to be sure to enjoy while there to eat that beautiful slice of Italian cuisine and enjoy it fully.
0: Well, you know, the Italian cuisine is straightforward, simple, but it is very seasonal. So I would travel seasonally through Italy and certainly, uh, you know, fall, uh, You've got to start in Piemonte. You have the truffles, you have the porcinis, you have the good Barolo wine, and that will keep you going, Your your senses going. But, you know, if you go in June and July, you go down to Liguria. A lot of fresh uh, basil, vegetables, green. You can imagine Liguria is green. Pestos. uh, uh, That's why. A lot of bluefish, sardines. That's the zone of that. And just so people
1: know, Lydia, here, Piedmont is up in the north, right? Piedmont would be around what big city is
0: Piedmont? Well, Piedmont is northwest of Milano. It's right underneath the French. And Liguria, you just go down from there. It's, if you will, in the left armpit. Of oh, the, the left is... armpit, that would be Genoa. Exactly. That's Liguria, the region of No offense Liguria. to Genoa and the Cinque Terre.
1: <laughs> I well, remember the... in the Cinque Terre, they're so proud of their pesto. I guess that Liguria is Green. where pesto came from.
0: Absolutely. All kinds of herbs, greens, uh, mm. and a lot of, of the bluefish sardines and all of that.
6: Okay. Tuscany,
0: rustic cuisine, you know, beans, uh, big pieces of meat, uh, uh, bread, you know, chunky bread. So if you're in a mood for... Uh, good wine, uh, beautiful scenery, and uh, uh, wholesome food. You know, it's not delicate food, but it's really kind of Hardy. Uh, food. Yeah, hearty Tuscany. But so that's then, you Tuscany know, around Florence for people who... Around Florence right. and the hills. Okay, But, you know, then if it's nice summer, July, I would go to Sicily. Sicily, you know, has hmm. the island of Sicily. Uh, eggplants, tomatoes, all the, the swordfish in the summer. It's beautiful. The summer really... Sicily explodes with flavor. There's an intensity in the products in Sicily that you find nowhere else. And at the same time... And by the way, about go... Sicily here, before we leave that beautiful... That's
1: the football at the end of the boot of Italy, right? And Exactly. And Sicily is different than a lot of Italy because it has this layer cake of civilizations. so many conquering civilizations coming through, and many of them left a little bit of their food heritage, didn't they? And we enjoy that today when we eat in Sicily.
0: Absolutely. If you're talking about, you know, rice, uh, raisins, pignoli, nuts, oranges, dates, Mm. they all came from the Middle East through Sicily into Italy. So, And Italy was uh, under the Spanish rules, uh, so it has a lot of that kind of Mediterranean, lower Mediterranean and Spanish flavor. And then you just cross over the Stretto di Messina, which is that little piece of water, and you're into Calabria. And Calabria is wonderful. It's wonderful in the summer and into the fall. It has this explosive use of peperoncino. It has wonderful peperoncino, wonderful licorice, licorizia. What is peperoncino? Cal- peperoncino is hot pepper. Ah, oh, it's, okay. It's, you know, it's like the Italian version of Tabasco, if you will. Ah. You know, it's like Nanduia now. <laughs> uh, Nanduja is in style now. It's that kind of red paste that you spread or put. That's Calabria, Uh wonderful with its cheeses. Calabria has a lot of of the the Greeks, you know, the Odysseys and all of that, the story. That's the travels to Calabria. Oh, yeah. And so it has a lot of the Greek influence in its cooking. And you move over to the heel of Italy, which is Puglia. Also, a lot of Greek, because it's right over, you know, when the wars in Greece, uh, the Trojan Wars and all, Mm -hmm. escaped into, into what is now Puglia of Italy. There, what they have... Wonderful fish, of course, because it's the little heel has mm-hmm. uh, water all around it. But it's all about legumes, uh, beans, lentils. Mm. It's about chicories, you know those those uh, uh, puntarellas, if you will, chicory salads. And a lot of chicory olive oils. is that
1: a lot of tourists they think they're getting a plate of uh, spinach, but it's uh, it's chicory actually, isn't it?
0: It's the healthiest green for you, and of course the burrata. Now everybody, mm. that's that's where it has its origin. And then, you know, if you go all the way up to where I come from, Friuli. uh, Friuli is is a combination. It has in its cuisine the Austrian, some Hungarian, and, of course, the Slavic, polenta. And it's right on the hills of the Alps. So a lot of great cheese. So Friuli would be the
1: northeast of Italy, and and that was near where you grew up. And let's make this very clear. If you had these giant cultural tectonic plates coming together, you've got three of them. You've got the Germanic world... You've got the Italian and the ro- Romantic world, and you've got the Slavic and uh, world exactly. coming together. What's an example of Germanic, Slavic, and Italian uh, heritage that mixes together in that northeastern corner of Italy?
0: If you have the 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 Germanic, uh, you have the uh, the Spetzels mm. and the Speck. Which is the smoke prosciutto? Ah, the
1: Dolomite, up in the Dolomite uh, mountains. That's what yes, you have. Yes,
0: yeah. exactly. Uh, the the uh, Slavic is they ha, they make a brovada there, which is uh, pickled turnips, and then they shred it, and it's like sauerkraut. And they use this pickled turnips uh, as a vegetables in soups. It's brovada with musetto. Musetto is this delicious sausage that in mm. in Emilia Romagna they call it cotechino. That's uh, very, very kind of a lot of those cured meats, so German, Slavic. And then, of course, the desserts that are <laughs> kind of, again, uh, a mixture of, of the Austrian. We make there um, a gnocchi called Susino, which is uh, a potato gnocchi. But instead of the little gnocchis, it's a big gnocchi. We put plums when they're ripe or plum gem, I jam. I love it. it.
1: I love it. I want to go we there and cook
0: it. it we cook it and and then we roll it in cinnamon and breadcrumbs, That's and it's so delicious. And I have people, you know, that are Austrian, uh, even even as far as uh, Czech and whatever. I said, you know, my mother used to make that. I said, well, we make it up in Friuli Venezia Giulia, and you know, Rick. Now when I go home, we have our home uh, near Cividale del Friuli the medieval town of Cividale di Friuli, which is beautiful. So I get involved in the, in the regional cuisine. We have a, a little winery there, and we also have a little b called Orsone there. Nice.
1: Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is celebrity chef and Italian food entrepreneur, Lydia Bastianich. You've seen her as the host of Lydia's Italy on Public TV. Lydia has also written 15 cookbooks, including her latest with recipes from her flagship restaurant, Fee Lydia, in New York City. Lydia also tells the dramatic stories of her close-knit family and how they eventually settled in the United States in her book called My American Dream, A Life of Love, Family, and Food. You can listen to our interview on that topic in the Travel with Rick Steves archives at ricksteves.com radio. Look for program number 546 from December of 2018. Lydia, when we think about Italian food, I think it's the case in a lot of cultures. In America, we learn about the cuisine of a land by the people who bring it to us, and the people who come into our country are oftentimes the poor and the, the desperate corners of those countries. Consequently, they'll bring a lot of the cuisine from the poor class or from the poor regions. In America... Would you say that's fair that people came from the poor parts of Italy and we eat a lot of um, recipes that would be uh, for the lower classes?
0: Absolutely, Rick. You know, and that's how the Italian American cuisine was born. It's which is quite different than the regional Italian cuisine when you go to Italy and eat. And that is precisely that at the end of how, how the, so exactly 18- oh, talk
1: just specifics because I get a sense that. Americans think this is Italian, but no,
0: it's actually Calabrian or or wherever these people came from. Well, some of the first, the, the first influx of Italian immigrants at the end of the 1800s came from basically three regions, which is Sicily, Calabria, and Campania, where Naples is. Yeah. So those three regions were the first immigrants. Those were the poorest region, and uh, they came on their boats, not bringing anything, much of anything, And they came to a new country. They bought the memories of what they cooked, but they had none of the ingredients. And a cuisine is very difficult to transport if you Mm. don't have the right ingredients. So they adopted the ingredients that they found in America and with the memories of how to cook them. And this new cuisine, the Italian-American cuisine, was born. Is that Uh, like spaghetti with meatballs? Because I don't think of that as Italian as much as American. It's not. It's very much American. So, uh, the spaghetti, of course, yes. The sauce, uh, absolutely, in Italy they do. But when they came to America, these immigrants, what was abundant in America was meat. And meat signified for this hmm. these uh, this people celebration, you know. And so, they, when they made their Sunday sauce, instead of making them, making it a mere uh, marinara or tomato sauce with a little bit of pork... They put a lot of meat in it because that signified that they came, they lived well now. So when Mm. an Italian makes his sauce, meatballs go in there, sausages go in there now, the Italian-American. And spaghetti and meatballs, spaghetti with some sauce were not enough. The meatballs were added just to show... Now we live well. So
1: that's a declaration of success. We are immigrants, and now we've got lots of meat, and when you have your Italian pasta, it's going to come with more meat than any Italian ever saw back in the old country.
0: Exactly. And so the evolution of the Italian-American cuisine went way in until the ingredients did start to come in and the Italians began to grow their own products. You know, California now produces so many of the Italian vegetables, uh, broccoli di rape, artichokes, garlic, all of that that is necessary for the Italian cuisine. I love this idea
1: that a lot of times, this is my own personal theory, that immigrants keep alive some of the most Sort of humble and, and hard scrabble dimensions of the cuisine, just to remind their grandchildren how tough it was back home. Uh, in Norway, we have uh, a few. Uh, in Norwegian culture, we have a few dishes that are just like reminding us of the hardship of our of our forebears. Uh, there's a lot of food in Italy. Ribolita, for example, is just a celebration sure. of of um, using yesterday's bread creatively today, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. And now, actually, it's almost chic to Mm -hmm. return to those values. And as a chef, you see a lot of the chefs really kind of uh, sprucing up, if you will, those poor dishes, Mm -hmm. Uh, but they have a message that comes along with it. And you're right, you know, through generations, actually it is very important uh, to share the culinary heritage within each family, within each, because it gives you strength, it gives you identity, to who, who you are. You know, we are, yes, as we we talked, we are all, um, this is America, but all of us are from an immigrant source.
1: Chef Lydia Bastianich is sharing her favorite regional comfort foods of Italy right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Her website is com. Let's go a little wider on this, Lydia. This is such a beautiful thought to, to wrap up our conversation with. When we think uh, I've been talking about my Norwegian heritage. I've got friends who are Filipino, Ethiopian, Mexican, Irish. They all have this deep-seated need and joy of of remembering their heritage through the food that they eat. Tell me how you as a as a person with a with a wonderful family that came to the United States and it's the beautiful immigrant story. What does food mean to you as a way to remember your roots?
0: Food is my way of sort of honoring, remembering, and transporting my roots through my future generations, my children, my grandchildren. For me, it's very important that they understand, you know, what my grandmother cook, what my mother cooks, the flavors. These are the flavors of their roots, of their relatives. And what it does, it gives them strength to relate to food at the table, when the holidays come, and you have the cookie that's been on the table for mm. five generations, mm. it, there's a common bond that happens. You feel like you belong. You, this is your clan in a way, and everybody loves to belong, and food does that. Food transcends. You know, language you lose, you lose within first, second generation unless you make an effort. But food and flavors transcends three, four generations and more.
1: When I was a child, I remember my grandmother gave me this krumkaka iron where you'd make the famous Norwegian cookies. And I didn't realize it then, but it was a ritual for her. She wanted me to have that iron so I could remember my heritage. And I was recently in Verona in Italy, and I stumbled onto a, a festival, and I asked the people, what's going on? And they say, every summer on this day we gather, and the older kids teach the younger kids how to make a good ravioli. And I just thought, this is worked into that society. They want to keep those traditions alive so they can remember from where they came. And, and that's exactly what you're celebrating in your work, I think.
0: Yes, I am. And I sense, you know, even the, the people that, that come to me that have that are three, four generations Italian, when they watch me, they say, oh, this, my grandmother used to make it. She never gave me the recipe. Oh, thank you, Lydia. They relive through my recipes and whatever, their own life, their own heritage.
1: Lydia Bastianich, what a delight to talk with you and, and to celebrate this culture, to celebrate your work. Um, best wishes with Lydia's Italy and congratulations on your new book, your autobiography, My American Dream. Grazie, Rick. Ciao, buon lavoro.
0: So, as we say at our house, cin cin and tutti a tavola, a mangiare e <gasps> bere.
1: Tell us about a tasty impression from your travels or maybe about your hometown in the form of an original haiku. The radio section of the ricksteves.com website has details for sending us yours. Here are some recent hometown haiku our listeners have sent us.
6: Amy Schumann from Cleveland gets to hear Travel with Rick Steves on Saturdays on WCPN and Sundays on WKSU. She sent us this haiku about her city beautiful city, the U.S. best-kept secret, Cleveland, Ohio. Barbara Martinez moved to Savannah from Chicago and hears us on Georgia Public Broadcasting's WSBH. She sends us a haiku about both of her cities. City on the lake, worldly, artistic, friendly, sweet home Chicago, and nestled by the sea, Charming historical squares connect Savannah. And Mike Mahalik from Squim, Washington, describes what it's like to bicycle on one of the islands near his home on the Olympic Peninsula. San Juan bike touring. Spirit soars high and pulls me like a big blue sail. Tell us about your travels in an original haiku poem. There's a link for sending them to us in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com.
1: Up next, a wine educator explains how to plan for sublime wine pairings and updates us on the wine industry trends in Europe. Cheers, it's Travel with Rick Steves. ¶¶ With over 10,000 wine varietals and wine-producing regions in more than 70 different countries, sometimes choosing the right wine can give you a headache. The wrong flavor profiles could throw off an exquisite meal, but the right wine can make it sing. Wine expert Nigel Murrell grew up in California and now lives in Madrid, where he's a certified wine educator. Nigel, do you have to be a sommelier to really understand wine pairings? I mean, what exactly is that?
2: Uh, Somebody is somebody that works at a fine dining establishment that is in charge of the wine list, is in charge of buying wines for the restaurant, in charge of training staff for appropriate, obviously, service. And obviously, going over and helping customers decide on which wine is appropriate. So the whole manager of the wine dimension of a great restaurant. Absolutely. And it requires many different skill sets. More than just coming to the table and say, let me help you with the menu. Right. I think a lot of people forget about the background that goes on. So what does it take to become a a sommelier? Well, there are different wine education programs throughout the world. The two most common are the uh, Guild of Sommeliers based here in the States Mm -hmm. and the WSET program based in London. So the WOCT program is the one I just finished, which uh-huh. focuses more on the analytical approach to wine, whereas the Guild Psalm also focuses on service.
1: So this is international. This is kind Absolutely. of a, an international standard. You can't just Absolutely. say you're a sommelier, and there's only so right. many of these organizations that can ordain right. you as a sommelier.
2: Well, you could call yourself that, but it would actually be much better to have that background, that education to complement work experience.
1: So you're living and working in Spain. Right could somebody conceivably be a Spanish wine sommelier or are you just a wine sommelier?
2: No, I mean, somebody could focus on a region or a country mm-hmm. and could really decide to really just focus on Spanish wines. But typically in fine dining establishments, they'll have international wines. And so if you really want to work at that upper level, you want to have an international, a broad international. range of knowledge. And
1: it seems to me there's different levels of... Uh, there's the sommelier, and then there's the super sommelier. <laughs> I mean, what are the top right. ranks here? So
2: the about? documentary Som, which uh, took place here in the States several years ago, really brought this profession into the limelight. And the master sommelier is the highest rank you can go within that program. In I heard there's only been like a couple hundred
1: right. ever. Exactly. There's so several hundred. That's and, one
2: good nose. Yeah. It's an, incredible, um, it's an incredibly difficult process. How,
1: now, you know wine enough to, to know what that would take. How
2: would you describe a master sommelier in a way that would just blow me away? How good it's are they? somebody that would be able to, we say, break down a wine, its components, and locate the grape variety, the region, the vintage, obviously its quality evaluation and its potential for aging just by tasting the wine without any other information. So uh, blind uh, taste, blind tasting, ultimate blind taste. I've, I've
1: been in vin- vineyards in France where the vintner will say, here on this hill, right. it's that, and just here on the other side of the road, absolutely. it's that, absolutely. and it's radically different. Exactly.
2: And so that level of education would be able to explain.
1: So the the, the sommelier, the, the master, could,
2: could right. take a sip of that in the town nearby and mm-hmm. go, oh, that was from this side of the road. Possibly. It's really a question of saying, why does this wine taste the way it does? Is it because of the climate, the soil? Obviously, there are multiple factors. And so maybe locating an exact vineyard parcel becomes much more difficult, but they would definitely be able to tell you the climate, the soil types, obviously the grape varieties. And they would know the the year by the character of Most the Most of them are able to nail it down within a year or two. That's pretty incredible. That must be yeah. a fun challenge for I you. I have not reached that. <laughs> no, yes, but still, you can, close yeah, your, you can yeah. have, do a blind tasting and right. I'm sure wow me. Now, this was originally, I guess it goes back to being the king's wine steward. Well, what's interesting is so that leads me back to there's the Guild of Somme program here in the States and then there's the WSET based in London. And that was based in London because the British wine trade had to educate its, so many it, its wine professionals being okay. the major importers of the world. Yeah. not being a producing nation. And so that's the program that I did was the WSET level four. So they'll restaurant restaurateurs on how to make wine uh, the top level of quality with their food. Well, yeah, and also exactly, just basically how the wine trade works, being such an important importer of understanding who the competitors are, which wines are better, and so why. a lot of it is business decisions. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. So it's, it's an expertise in wine, but it's also an expertise in the business. Right, in wine business So as well. a sommelier makes a, a lot of money, it's ultimately paid for by the diner. What's the practical value of a sommelier?
2: Well, the practical value above all is having somebody come and explain to you why choosing wine A will not go with uh, plate B, C, and D, because really it's about avoiding unpleasant combinations. Now, that is the magic bridge, when you can pair the food right. with the wine. Absolutely. and.
1: When we think about wine, the big stress point for a lot of travelers is, oh, I'm having fish, or I'm having red meat, or, or it's got to have a, the right connection. Right. Of course, people say there's no rules, but there is a value in being mindful of what you're eating Absolutely. and then pairing it with what Absolutely. you're drinking. What's some advice? Well, I actually,
2: said there are rules, but you shouldn't let yourself be bullied by the rules, right? right. And the rules would be avoiding dangerous ingredients like spice, bitterness, and sweetness. And okay. sweetness we think of, of course, being just for desserts, but of course, any salad dressing these days, especially commercial salad dressing, has some element of sweetness. Right. All those elements that I just named are going to make wines taste thinner, less fruity, more acidic, more bitter, and that, of course, takes away from the pleasure of drinking wine. So I'm having a nice bit of Chianina beef in
1: Tuscany. Okay. Beautiful steak. Okay. Red meat. What would I have?
2: Well, the nice thing is that's a fairly safe dish. Unless, uh, Is there any sauce on that? No. Okay. So it's probably just a little bit of salt on top. That's it. That's fantastic, because salt is our best friend when it comes to wine pairing. Salt will make any wine taste less tannic, less bitter, fruitier. Good to know. Fuller in body. Absolutely. Salt, and then the other good friend is acidity. So, for example, if you have a lemon sauce or some kind of citrus sauce with fish, it's going to make a wine taste a little less acidic Mm -hmm. and fruitier in that sense.
1: I can understand the nice pairing of a good full-bodied red wine with a nice red steak. Right
2: especially because those fuller-bodied red wines usually have higher levels of tannins. Okay. Tannins are what you make your mouth feel kind of dry, like somebody's taking a little cotton ball and dried up your saliva. And so that can be displeasing for some people. And that steak with the salt is going to actually modify that and, and smoothen that effect.
1: Wine expert Nigel Murrell is the founder of Madrid Walking Tours, Food Tours, and Wine Tastings. He's with us on Travel with Rick Steves to teach us how to choose wine like an expert we have a link to his website from our radio page at ricksteves.com slash radio. So what is it about fish and white wine?
2: Right, well, fish is a delicate meal. Uh, usually it's not as full-flavored as, for example, the steak you just mentioned. Mm-hmm. And white wines have more delicate flavors. There obviously are, are very good examples of very full-bodied, powerful white wines. But in general, we're looking for that elegance that will accompany the fish and the acidity in a white wine, which is higher than red wines, is going to make us salivate more and cleanse our mouth for the next bite without interfering with the flavors of the fish. So you're getting a a clean palate afterwards and you'll be able to appreciate the more delicate flavors of fish, Uh, but at the same time, those flavors of the fish stay with you. It's a wonderful pairing in that sense.
1: You know, I bet a sommelier is a very good friend of the chef because the sommelier can make the chef sparkle.
2: Absolutely, and they work in tandem to make sure that the wine pairing menus with those high end restaurants where they have different plates go hand in hand and provide the greatest overall experience. Uh, I was just at a a Michelin starred restaurant mm-hmm.
1: in Iceland, Okay. and I'm I can spend um 140 dollars for the ten courses, or right. I could spend 100 and I could spend 200 dollars mm-hmm. for that with wine. Right. If you're
2: really into wine, there's some thought that goes into Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And the the saddest thing is people say, well, I, I don't want to taste other wines. I'm just going to stick with this wine I know and like. Right. But then when you Think about all those dishes you're that are handcuffing yourself. Yeah, you're you're exactly. straight yourself. Absolutely. absolutely. And you actually you're, and end up not enjoying. The
1: chef probably wants to come out and say, I'll pay for it, but come <laughs> right, on, I'm exactly. working really hard on this food. Have it's the true. right wine. It's true. Absolutely. It's, so, worth, it's worth trusting and paying more. So skip originally. lunch, stay in a youth hostel, but you go. Pay, <laughs> <laughs> for the, pay for the wine pairings. <laughs> That's a good advice. Good advice. Now, the, the tools of the sommelier. I've been to uh, tastings in
2: France where they have that. Uh, Taste yeah, one. Exactly. Exactly. Well,
1: that's that silver shallow
2: plate. Yeah, that's from what I've seen. It's not used as much when I go to those types of restaurants, but I don't go often. Right. <laughs> so I have to say that my experience in those higher level restaurants is less. But it was something that in the past was made to make sure that the wine was obviously in, in correct drinking condition. These days, what you'll see. Somebody's doing is smelling the cork, above all, because you're, they're looking for cork taint. So when you, they make
1: a big deal about that with the with the ritual of uh, corking right. the wine, right. and they'll smell the cork, and sometimes they'll
2: even before you get a chance to say it's no good, they oh no, this has gone bad. What do you see in the cork? Well, the cork has a compound called TCA, which we don't need to get into technicalities, but it basically gives the flavor of wet cardboard or mold, and it ruins a wine. And so if you open a bottle and you smell the cork and you smell those 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 aromas then obviously you don't want the ah. customer because it can be a very powerful smell that stays with you. And so then the next bottle you open, which hopefully will be a, a clean wine, you yep. don't want that to be the first experience. If you're opening a bottle and the cork breaks off, is that an indication that you're lousy with the corkscrew or that the wine's <laughs> gone bad? <laughs> no, it, it's usually an indication that the cork is old, It's an older bottle of wine. Yeah. And then they'll have a special... Um, Corkscrew that has like it's a winged tip that I yeah. can slide it down. Oh yeah, that, and then wiggle it out. But
1: apart from that, yeah, I'll right. get
2: the cork out sooner or later. But <laughs> does it mean the wine's gone bad or
1: is no, it, no? No, 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 no. So you're okay. With, Don't yeah. give up if your cork no, breaks. No, exactly, exactly. Okay. It can we just be a very old cork? And That's, even if you get a little pieces of cork in the wine, it's still going to be okay wine, unless it, yeah. I mean, it you want to filter those out, <laughs> right? This is travel with Rick Steves. We're <laughs> we're becoming wine aficionados with Nigel Mural and Nigel's uh, a Californian friend of ours who now lives in Spain and is studying to be a wine educator. So, Nigel, you've got the, the ritual, uh, and that's a big part of the, it's the presentation. I love a beautifully presented meal. How does the
2: sommelier add to the presentation with the corking and the presentation? Right. What, is that, what's the goal here? Well, there definitely there's a formality to it and a ritual that brings along a type of romance. So, really, the service of the sommelier is to bring along this kind of this romance and this tradition and this ritual. And so they're there, obviously, to serve the wine, but at the same time, they're there to explain the bottle to you, to explain the flavors, to explain why that wine is special, the history behind it. And I, I think it's part of the, the, the whole experience. It's nice to get that
1: context. Right. You Absolutely. can get the context Absolutely. between a, a piece of music out a symphony for and sure. enjoy it better. Yeah, the context you get the is context crucial. of the art, who paid for it and why. That's true. Uh, you know, what was going on when this
2: cathedral was built? Absolutely. The same
1: thing with this work of art in a bottle. Absolutely. And
2: I know it doesn't make the wine taste any different, but you appreciate it a lot more.
1: That is. Of great value as far as
2: I'm concerned.
1: Now, when we go to a fine restaurant, there's this decanting, right?
2: and for some people it just seems pretentious, but Mm. uh, what's going on here? What you're doing is you're allowing the wine to come into contact with oxygen, and that's interesting because a wine that is under cork for a long time, it has to learn how to breathe again, in a sense, and so by allowing it to come into oxygen, you are allowing the aromas to open up to become more accessible to yourself as as a consumer. And it makes the wine really show its, its full potential. And so it, it's not pretentious at all. It's actually quite important. And the sommelier will advise the diner you need to let this breathe a bit. Right. And there are some wines that need uh, more time to breathe, some wines that need less, some wines that can simply open up in your glass little by little, but some that benefit tremendously from being decanted for maybe a half hour or even longer.
1: And how about when you have a glass
2: and you, you swirl it? Exactly. Of, is that um, you're, accelerating? You're do, exactly. That you kind of, what you're doing, you're, that's a very good way to put it, is you're kind of fast-forwarding by pushing air into the And that's wine. not cheating. It's okay. No, absolutely
1: not. In fact... I really, like to smell it after I do that yes, because absolutely. it releases a bouquet. because you
2: notice that. You notice that the aromas are actually stronger. They're more volatile in a sense. And a
1: cool thing about a wine glass, you can swirl the heck out of yes. it and it never spills. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. I love that. Now, are you, when you're trying to be a, a wine expert or educator or mm-hmm. even a sommelier... Is there a natural talent that some people just shake that and go, nice try, but give it up, you're wasting your money in You
2: know, I hear people say that when I give wine tastings, that they say, I just, I'm i no good at smelling, I mm-hmm. would never do this. Mm-hmm. I think it just is a matter of practice. I think it's learning to access that Rolodex of memories that we have in our heads of different yeah. smells, yeah. and then putting that with a theory and understanding where those smells come from. And I think it's a matter of just committing yourself to it. You know,
1: I think the nose might be a little bit of a neglected sense Absolutely. in a lot of ways, Absolutely. because we don't, a lot of us never have an occasion to kind of go, what am I smelling? Right. Or, or you know, what's the fine
2: difference here? Right. And if you think about it, when we walk down the street, we're so overwhelmed by different smells that the nose's reaction is to block those out, it out. And then really continue to register new smells. And
1: if you have a cold and you can't Absolutely. smell, you
2: don't taste as well. Absolutely.
1: This is travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nigel Muir. We're talking about appreciating wine and and uh, what's behind this whole idea of a wine sommelier. Nigel, I've I've always thought that when you're um, traveling, mm-hmm. people are just they're they've got a budget. And we want to have good wine, but we don't want to waste money on right. the wine. Right. What, what are your tips on just getting a good value for, for my budget and, and my ability to
2: appreciate it? That's a good question. I think really we'll talk about Spain here, which is where I live and work. Mm-hmm. And there's definitely a sweet spot. Obviously, there are wonderful Spanish wines for less than 10 euros. But really, to get that extra special experience, really you're looking at a range that's anywhere from 15 euros up to maybe 40, maximum 50 mm-hmm. euros, which is very high in Spain. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. But I think you're talking I'm,
1: a, a twenty five, thirty,
2: forty dollar exactly, bottle of wine. Exactly, yeah. and so I think that's the real sweet spot where you can find some amazing wines.
1: So. I was once at a at a wine shop in Greece, and I said, "I've got thirty dollars for a bottle of wine. What <laughs> should I get?" And he said, three bottles." <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, that's because in Greece, approach. apparently, he would... no, but right. he was just saying you're I not going to get saying. a lot more. But I think I in Spain,
1: yeah. I would rather spend thirty dollars yes. because it's a it's a very good wine culture. Absolutely, and you know, I'm not going to appreciate necessarily a hundred dollar bottle, right. but. um, they always say life's too short for a mediocre wine. I don't want to go to a dinner in in San Sebastian right. and, and
2: spend $10 for a bottle of wine. I mean, right. If I'm going to drink it, it's Absolutely. worth $30 to me. I think the one thing I'd add to that is that many people think by spending a lot more, they're going to get a better and better bottle of wine. But there's definitely wines that are that expensive but they're made to drink many, many years down the road. And by oh, okay. opening them early we're actually not getting very much. So that's part of the value is is, is getting it at the peak. Right, right.
1: And so some wines are made to drink within the first couple of years. And also, people are suckers for the brand. When you go to Tuscany, I want Brunello di Montalcino. You're going to pay double for Brunello di Montalcino for something that
2: doesn't have the brand that's just over the border. And you could definitely, it takes a little bit more research, but I think that by doing that, you'll find better value.
1: It'd be nice to have a sommelier. Absolutely, (laughs) absolutely. I think there's kind of an image that red wine is better than white wine.
2: Yeah, I can see that. It goes through periods of time when you look back, depending on what decade you're in, there's trends. But it's true that red wine um, over the last 20 years has kind of taken the forefront, especially with the rise of red burgundy. And so I can see why you say that. Because, I mean, on the Rhine River, you're going to have white wine. Right, absolutely. And that's but what in have, Burgundy, right. in, you're not going to have white wine. Well, you, it depends. You might have a wonderful Chardonnay. It depends uh, on what part of Burgundy you're in, but it's okay. true. that It's red Burgundy that's really uh, at the forefront. Because when I just feel like, oh man, I just absolutely <laughs> love this. It's a red wine right. in Spain, France, or Italy. Right, right. I mean, I love both. I think anything that's well done should be appreciated. Yeah,
1: and, and uh, you're right. And I, I like to spend extra on a white wine. Right. When I'm in Vienna, absolutely. I'll go, I'll go for the most expensive Gruner Veltliner. Right. And I I'm glad I do. Absolutely. Gruner Veltliner. Oh, that's a wonderful beautiful grape. white wine. That's great. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by wine expert Nigel Mural. And Nigel's a, a wine educator. Now, I'm a little skeptical about um, developing societies that say, oh, this wine is, is the, the big new thing mm-hmm. uh, because they need it for their economy. But when you've got, if you're going to, Moldova, or, okay. or, or, you know, it's <laughs> a region I don't know very well. let say you're going to some, <laughs> some country that's
2: you know, just emerging right. and they're bragging about their wine. right? What do you find? I mean, it's a diamond in the rough at best, I would think. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a two-pronged approach. Here. One is local pride, which is always a good thing. Right. And they should be promoting their, their domestic product. Another thing is, um, perhaps you wonder, have they done comparisons with other wines outside the region or outside the country? Yeah. And when you're tasting those wines, you can see potential or you can see excellence you can gain an
1: appreciation of the, of the heritage right. of many generations of right. a wine culture. Right. And in Italy and in France Absolutely. and in Spain, you have that, uh, that nobility right. in the wine. Right. Another interesting thing is a society that decides we're going to pull back on the table wine okay. and produce less right. and better. Which that's a trend across Europe. Yeah, and I've, I've really noticed that because uh, when I was a younger traveler, it was just great table wine, right. you know, Chianti. Right. Well, now there's less of it, but and it's, it's good And people consume more it then when yeah. you
2: were younger, absolutely. People consume less these days. Right. And so the, the trend is to make better wine, and people are willing to pay a little bit more, and, but they're consuming less, and that's actually a healthier trend as well. So it's a fascinating evolution. It is, it is. And it's better for wine production because it focuses on quality. Winery is able to make a little bit more. At the end of the day, if they don't survive, we can't drink. So as a wine expert, Nigel,
1: I, I would imagine you're tuning into governmental policies and the wine industry in general.
2: The regulations and general. In right.
1: some societies, it's just a huge, a few giant corporations mm-hmm. and they may put a little family name on it, but it's right. really a big corporation. Right. There's
2: many invented brands. Yeah. Absolutely. And in
1: other countries, it is a vibrant microbrew sort of equivalent where right. you've got hundreds artisan. of little artisans. Yeah. Yeah. How does that vary from country to country?
2: United States, France, right. Italy, Spain? I mean, within Mediterranean Europe, obviously there's a long tradition of wine production and there are many small families that still earn their living entirely from wine production. In the United States? In the United States, yeah, you definitely find, well, there's a little bit more disposable income in Mm -hmm. the United States compared to Europe. And so you'll find in California, where I grew up, obviously people are willing to pay a little bit more, but Mm -hmm. of course, great prices are more expensive. Labor is more expensive. And so some people complain, this wine is so expensive, but you have to understand what the costs of production are Mm -hmm. as well. And so it's, sure, it's great when you find that really, really good deal, but then you also have to ask yourself, is this a price that is really allowing the family to get by? And so- You know, and
1: sometimes the reality is you need the economy of scale right. to survive. Absolutely. And in some Absolutely. cases, like I believe in France, the government
2: recognizes the value of subsidizing the family farms right. and you'll have more family wineries. Right, that's true. And you, so you have those family wineries in Italy, Spain, and France. Yep. But it's still a very difficult business. I don't yep. want anybody to think that, well, just anybody can go in, you make money. Uh, it's a struggle in many countries. So. Let's get over there and help them out. Absolutely.
1: Up. All right. Nigel Mural. thanks for helping us better understand right. wine appreciation as
2: we travel. Thanks for having me, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Isaac Kaplan-Wolner, and Casmara Hall. We get website support from Amerikipnikon, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Gretchen Straub read our listener travel haiku. Special thanks to Larry Josephson and Deb Stathopoulos at the Radio Foundation in New York for their help this week. There's more at ricksteves.com slash radio.
6: Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take thousands of free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through Europe one small group at a time. Next year, you can choose from more than 40 different vacations in Europe's best destinations, from Ireland to Greece and practically everywhere in between. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.